I don't know how to talk into a microphone. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Professor Kaplow. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Not too bad. Hey, Marcus, here's something I've been thinking about, um, and not just because we're talking about it in my class this week. What do you think about international security institutions? Do you think that these institutions matter in international security? Is this something we should pay attention to? You know, Jeff, uh, that's a really good question. I, I guess after all these years of thinking about <laughs> institutions and security institutions in particular, I sort of have come to the conclusion that I like them in theory, but I don't really love them in practice. Um, let, me, let me explain what I mean. So uh, if we think about what an institution is, first of all, or what it does, I, I tend to think about it in terms of like um, the way that the IR scholars used to talk about it as like regimes, right? International regime. It's sort of like um, a bunch of stuff that states kind of agree about, uh, ideas that they're sort of on the same page about. Um, they, they sort of use the same terminology. And it's basically like a, a, a device to get everybody kind of together and on the same page. And we all kind of share broadly the same, same goals. We might disagree sort of tactically about how to achieve some of those goals. But for the most part, we're all part of this thing together. Uh, and we all, you know, presumably get something out of it. And so that's why, why we join it. And more specifically, um, I think institutions can do a number of things that are very beneficial to the international system, right? So uh, one of the things that, that happens in security in particular that becomes really important is, is something like reputation, right? So a state's reputation to uphold an agreement, let's say, or a state's reputation to uh, do what it's, you know, it says it's going to do. This is all relevant information that, that states uh, need to have. And so institutions can provide sort of a venue um, or a, a forum, if you will, for getting information out in the open. And so you can see another state's uh, reputation in other words, right? So we think about this so like in sort of game theory terms, like states are playing prisoners' dilemmas with each other all the time, right? Just sort of like over and over and over again. And if I can sort of see those interactions take place and know uh, you know, how often you defect and how often you cooperate, stuff like that, that's actually useful information for me. And so I think institutions, by kind of like providing information transparency, can help states kind of cooperate because they can see like, okay, this state, you know, cooperates most of the time or they're, they have a good reputation. So therefore I feel okay uh, interacting with them. So I think that that helps. The other thing that's, that institutions do that I think is important is they do lower transaction costs in the sense that you know, it's nice to have a building in New York that you can go to or Geneva you can go to and, and sort of give a speech and interact with other other states and, you know, have, you know, sort of the ability to, to get consensus built in a, in a very sort of easy way, right? You don't have to go individually to all these, you know, different states. You can go to one place and sort of interact, right? And so, and so institutions can theoretically, like, lower the transaction costs of, of doing business. And I think that that's, um, that's an important part of, of what they do. And then I guess lastly, I'd say that... Uh, if institutions have one value particular, it might be in sort of mitigating some of the, what we talk about as a future uncertainty problem, right? So, you know, again, if I have a, if an environment where we're sh all sharing information and we're sort of opening up the books, so to speak, and you can see sort of how I responded in a particular situation in the past, you might have a better sense of how I might respond to something similar in the future, right? So if I, if I can convince you um, that I'm a reputable actor and I sort of live up to, to what I say I'm going to do, that might sort of give you some confidence that the future is not going to be quite as bad as, as you might think, right? Because if, if the future is completely uncertain, then that can have kind of a paralyzing effect because you, you don't know what you should be doing. So I think theoretically, 
institutions can can sort of do those three things. They can sh- you know help share information. Uh, they can lower transaction costs. Uh, they can sort of build reputations and, and stuff like that. You can even make the argument that some institutions have like property rights type of, of setups. This is more, I think, the case in trade. We have like the World Trade Organization does this pretty well. Um, they have a dispute settlement mechanism. But anyway, so for security institutions, that doesn't that not really uh, apply quite as much. The reason, though, that I have come to sort of um, not like institutions in practice is that Depending on the institution, it, it seems like an awful lot of, of power politics kind of comes into to play, right? So I think a good example might be the UN uh, Security Council. We can kind of compare, you know, what happened uh, in the first Gulf, Gulf War with the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. You know, basically the, the, um, the situation was Iraq and invaded Kuwait. The entire international system for the most part sort of like looked at that and said that's atrocious like that should not be the case uh we need to do something about it and you know that the un sort of got together uh with the u.s kind of spearheading the whole thing and decided that you know force uh could be authorized because everybody more or less agreed okay so they go and do that and you liberate kuwait everything's great right and then you flash forward to the second sort of gulf war this is the the iraq war that we we talk about a lot um, and here you have a case where the United States wanted to uh, invade Iraq for a couple different reasons, but one of which was they, they were making the argument that Iraq did not live up to its uh, sort of post-First Gulf War things that it pledged to do, the, the requirements that it had as, as a sort of result of that war. And plus there was allegations of weapons of mass destruction and, and things like that. The problem here, though, was that the this international system was essentially split, or actually really the, the sort of uh, forces that wanted to invade Iraq were... Uh, in some sense, the minority in terms of the, the sort of great powers. But they, the United States looked at the United Nations and said, you know, this is not going to work for us. It didn't look like they were going to get the votes in the Security Council. There, was, there were threats to veto already. And so the United States basically said, well, I guess we're not going to go to the UN this time. We're just going to go uh, invade Iraq ourselves. And it wasn't just the United States, of course. There were other states involved. But I, I think if you look at these two, exa- two examples, you might, you might say, well, okay. So you have a United Nations, you know, sort of set up, a security institution, if you will that is supposed to be there uh, for legitimate you know, reasons for the international system, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to help the international system in the sense that it provides for you know, defense and, and security, and it sort of puts out fires where there's fires and, and stuff like that. And one way to interpret what happened, and the, the, the sort of difference between these two cases is that basically uh, the United States uh, wanted to, to invade in both instances. In one case, the UN agreed. The other case, the UN didn't agree. And the US invaded either way, right? Which is to say that one of the problems with security institutions is that the powerful states can more or less do what they want, right? The repercussions, the United States faced repercussions for, for doing that. There was, Kofi Annan said the, the war was illegal. Uh, there were people at the time making arguments that this is a violation of international law. And I think that, you know, a lot of people to this day would, would agree that, that that invasion was illegal from an international perspective. And yet it didn't really matter, you know? So uh, the United States did what it wanted to do. And so, um, I think a critic of a, of a institution would say that, you know, at the end of the day, the institutions just sort of reflect the, the power dynamics. Um, you know, states are going to do more or less what they want to do anyway, to the extent that it's congruent with what the institution wants. That's great, but it's not necessarily the case that the institution is changing a state's behavior. And indeed, for, for people that study institutions, this is a deeply sort of troubling empirical point, which is it's very difficult to show in any given one shot example. That the institution did anything, right? Because if if the state is going to do what it wants anyway, 
um, you, it's really hard to show that when it, it's aligned with what the institution wants, that it was the institution doing the work and not and not the state. So, you know, I just I've just become sort of um, skeptical of these security institutions over time. And we, we, we can talk about other failures, of the United Nations, or we can talk about other security institutions. But it just seems to me like a lot of it is, is really sort of boils down to politics, unfortunately. And that and that has sort of made me question, I think, over time, what value the institutions play. Yeah, and I, I think you're right in, in that the institutions become a another venue for power politics to play out. And whether or not that's a feature or a bug depends on your position in the international system, right? I mean, if you were a powerful country in the international system, the idea that some international institution um, would enable other countries to negate that power is a non-starter, right? You wouldn't want to sign on to such an institution. And so the, the proposition that international security institutions can have this dramatic constraining power over the decisions of states who would otherwise want to defect, uh, it seems really tough um, as just a kind of starting point. One thing that, that institutions, I think, are effective at doing, and you kind of got at this with the, with the Iraq example, is acting as a kind of coordination mechanism where states can use the institution to gain efficiency, as you said, as a way to kind of coordinate their behavior, which could otherwise be a, a tricky thing to do. And the fact that the United Nations exists and has these mechanisms for passing resolutions through the UN Security Council that then other countries kind of that gives it the kind of stamp of legitimacy that other countries are then inclined to follow unless they have some reason um, otherwise to defect. The fact that all this exists means that there's a mechanism in the case of the invasion of Kuwait for the U.S. to go to the international community and say, here, something must be done. Of course, that doesn't mean that states will always want to go along, as we see in the in the 2003 example, where the U.S. couldn't find a uh, a quorum of of international of states to go along with it, its designs. So I, I don't know that this necessarily negates the idea that international security institutions matter in some way, because that coordination mechanism might be really powerful. And you know, you can imagine a world where the UN doesn't exist and the U.S. has to go through the same effort uh, in in Kuwait. Um, but meets with much less success because there isn't a venue at which to kind of have that discussion, at which to make the case for other countries to get on board. And so the signal sent is therefore weaker. So I think I think there is kind of a, an argument to me that that coordination mechanism is important. There's also this potential issue of the institution not so much as doing anything itself, but acting as a kind of focusing mechanism for international attention in particular situations. So we often think of the value added of institutions, you talked about this, as, as revealing information about state behavior. And the, the way we kind of traditionally think of this is, well, some institutions have a built-in mechanism for getting information out of their member states. So if you think of, for, for example, um, like international alliances like NATO as a kind of institution, then there's this mechanism for NATO countries declaring their military capabilities to the other parties. And this is kind of built into the NATO structure. If you think of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which I do all the time, that has kind of a mechanism through the International Atomic Energy Agency where states can declare their nuclear pursuits. And that kind of information is kind of shared with other members of the organization. And this is kind of a built-in information revelation mechanism that, that's inside the 
institution. But there's another way that, that institutions reveal information, and that's because they, they provide a kind of focusing mechanism by which you can evaluate the behavior of other institutions, of the other countries in the, in the international system. So if you see, for example, that there are a bunch of states that are cheating on their commitments under the nuclear nonproliferation regime, that might affect your decision about whether to cheat. And you won't be able to see that these states are cheating if there aren't that set of rules that are kind of written out in the, in the nonproliferation regime in the first place. So the fact that the institution exists the mere fact that it exists, whether or not it does anything on its own, can provide this way of gathering information for other countries. And that could be a really powerful effect in, in, some, in some work that, that I have. I, I kind of argue that this mechanism of the nuclear nonproliferation regime is really one that helps keep states in compliance, that they, that they see that other states are complying, and so they're reassured. They don't feel like they need to seek a nuclear weapon themselves because it looks like other states are generally abiding by the rules. But when that um, kind of dynamic shifts and states start to cheat, well, then you can see that they're cheating because the nonproliferation regime exists, right? And then once you see that they're cheating, well, then other states now have an incentive to cheat themselves because they will be, because they then want to protect themselves from those other states getting nuclear weapons as well. So you can imagine that this kind of a focusing mechanism is also one way in which international security institutions might matter. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. That's, that's really nicely put. I mean, you were talking about coordination a second ago, and I think um, that spurred a thought that I had, uh, which is that they, I think one of the problems with institutions is is they can also do the exact opposite. So the, this idea of like either in coordination, I guess, or discoordination, one of the pathologies that sometimes happens in institutions like, say, the UN Security Council is that it provides a way for states to sort of artfully uh, not take any action, right? So if you think about something like the 1994 Rwandan genocide, Part of what's going on in those in those uh, meetings at the UN Security Council is states actively trying to figure out a way to not get involved, to not actually do anything uh, to stop the genocide, and basically stall. You know, where they they sort of you know talk about doing the the right thing and talk about sort of taking action and talk about coordination. But in a sense, the way that the UN uh, Security Council is set up allowed for them to to not have to do anything, which is really remarkable for a, a security institution that. At least, you know, implicitly is supposed to to do things like prevent genocide or respond to, to genocide, right? So, you know, I think institutions have this these sort of weird dynamics. It's almost like when the institution gets created, it, it sort of has processes that are are part of the institution become uh, strategically used by states to either do things or, in this particular case, not to do things. The other the other odd thing about the way that that some of these institutions work, like the UN um, Security Council. Is that in '94, one of the rotating delegations on the on the Security Council was actually from Rwanda, right? So you had a situation in which, tragically, they're discussing whether or not to respond to a genocide that's occurring in Rwanda when the the, the delegation from Rwanda is in the room. I mean, it just creates these very odd uh, dynamics. So the 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 sort of things I was talking about before, information sharing. Yes, you're you're sharing information, but in that particular instance, it wasn't it wasn't actually the you didn't get the outcome that sh that maybe the system wanted, precisely because there was this this sort of club environment where the rules were kind of like you don't you don't you know dress down the person uh, uh, from Rwanda and sort of like hold them to account or anything like that. It's a very you know sort of formal environment where people are are playing by the rules and very very polite to one another. You know, meanwhile, there's a genocide going on, um, and so it's it's an odd. You know, the UN in particular is kind of odd, but I think a lot of these institutions have similar uh, dynamics. And some scholars have looked at these 
I think they call them, you know, sort of club, club-like uh, dynamics where, you know, for, for better or for worse, uh, these, these diplomats have certain rules that they play by, and there's certain etiquette, and there's certain sort of, like, practices that can sometimes just do the exact opposite of what, you know, the institution was really designed to do. I guess I'll say just lastly, because I, I'm a fan of diplomacy and I study face-to-face diplomacy, I do, I do think one value of, of having these um, institutions is the ability to talk and communicate. So if diplomacy is pre- predominantly about communication, you know, just I, I think it can't be overstated how important it is to have a place, like a venue, a forum where states can talk. Um, I mean, this, this goes way back, obviously, the, the Congress of Vienna, you know, they were doing this as well. But, you know, states found it valuable to have a place that they could go to and, and you know, sort of hash out. Uh, their differences or try to build consensus with one another. And so, you know, at the, at the very least, if you just think about like what it does from that perspective, to me, that's, that's valuable. But for the reasons we've discussed, you know, I've become sort of skeptical of, of a lot of, a lot of institutions. Yeah. Um, those are those are great points, Marcus. You mentioned earlier the issue of trying to get at the counterfactual here. I think the, the Rwanda case is, a, is really interesting in that regard that yes, the UN was useless in the case of the Rwandan genocide, but it's not clear that not having the UN would have been any better in the case of the Rwandan genocide. And so it's really a complicated question. How do you get at the usefulness of these institutions? Because measuring the counterfactual is so difficult, right? I mean, we, how would we know whether these institutions have really changed anyone's behavior? And this goes to kind of a larger debate in the international institutions literature in political science between the kind of folks who think that international institutions constrain other states, constrain state behavior. That is, they change what states would want to do anyway. And the uh, scholars who believe that institutions have more of a screening effect, that is, states that want to comply with an institution join, and states that don't want to comply with the institution don't join, but the institution itself has no kind of independent effect on state behavior. So the example I, I sometimes talk about is the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, where here you have a very widely subscribed to treaty. It's the most successful um, security treaty um, sort of short of the UN, and it's the, the most successful arms control treaty. And basically, all the countries but a few are members of the Nonproliferation Treaty at this, at this point. And this treaty obligates countries who don't have nuclear weapons already not to develop them. And so you might look at this, you might look at the number of states that have joined this treaty and the the number of states that have gotten a nuclear weapon while a member of the treaty, which is zero, and think, wow, this treaty has been remarkably successful. Here we have uh, so many countries that have signed on to not get nuclear weapons, and really no one has gotten a nuclear weapon while a member of the treaty, although North Korea did leave and get a get a North a nuclear weapon, but we'll set them aside for a moment. People make this argument that this is evidence that the Nonproliferation Treaty is really effective. But it could also be that the kind of states that decide to join the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty are the ones that don't want nuclear weapons and know it. And so they join the treaty, but it doesn't mean that the treaty is having its own kind of independent constraining effect on their behavior. It just means they've already made a decision that they don't want nuclear weapons. And so they're inclined to join the treaty for that reason. Um, they signed on with full knowledge that this treaty was not going to affect them in that way. Um, and I think trying to adjudicate between the idea of treaties as screening mechanisms and treaties as constraining mechanisms is a real big problem. And it's, it's, there are a number of folks with kind of innovative empirical solutions to this, um, but it remains kind of the, the toughest challenge for understanding how international security institutions matter in the world. Yeah, that's that's really that's a really good insight. I mean, I, I think the the only last thing I'd say about this too is um, I feel bad for institutions sometimes 
Uh, and what I mean by that is I, I think that, uh, at least in the public view, sometimes they are imbued with powers that they actually don't have, uh, or they're, they're sort of, their, their importance is, is overstated, or people believe that they have a mandate that they don't actually have. I think one of the things we've been looking at very recently is the World Health Organization and why you know, some states are, are, like the United States, for example, at least in the Trump administration, very uh, against the World Health Organization and very uh, sort of adamant that they did a bad job, that the, the World Health Organization failed, right? And, and it's an interesting point because one of the things that, it, that, that leads to is a question of, well, what is the World Health Organization supposed to do? If they failed, if the claim is that they failed, well, what was their, what was their aim in the first place? And I think sometimes people think that the World Health Organization is, a, is an entity that's there to prevent pandemics or there to uh, you know, make, it, make it so that the coronavirus doesn't kill as many people as, as possible. And uh, the reality of the situation is that the World Health Organization is a sort of information-sharing uh, entity that, that helps states coordinate, as we talked about a second ago, if they want to. And if, if they don't want to, if the United States thinks that it's, uh, the World Health Organization is too beholden to China, let's say, or they think that you know, the World Health Organization is you know, biased in some other way, then they're not going to use it. So the, these institutions are only as good really, at the end of the day, as the states who make, make them up. And so if, if the United States does not want to use the World Health Organization, that's going to hurt the World Health Organization. And then lastly, a lot of these are underfunded. I mean, the World Health Organization doesn't, for example, doesn't have um, a ton of money. Like their budget is, is relatively small, given the sort of aims that I think a lot of people like place on it and the goals that, that a lot of people sort of want it to, to be able to try to achieve. And, and that's, I think, important because it does affect the perception of of these these institutions if i know that they're resource constrained and they're doing the best that they can it's just that they don't have a lot you know they don't have resources the un you know the un doesn't have an army to go and send out they have peacekeepers but you know they don't have like a a, a real sort of like way to to convince states to do what what it is that they want to do you know if that's the case then then we really don't we, we can't expect too much from them right and so maybe one of the problems with institutions have just you know, in the sort of public perception is that our expectations are, are too high Thanks so much, Marcus. I, I appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. This is great. I've been thinking about a puzzle. Do you want to hear what the puzzle is? No, no I don't. I really, I want to know part of whatever, whatever you're about to say. What I was going to ask you, <laughs> was, that, was that a little forced? <laughs> the segue wasn't great on that one. Let's take it from, take it from the top. Go back. <laughs>